I pray that we would be realizing our need every hour. And Lord, there's no greater hour that I need you than now when I stand to proclaim your word and Lord, that we need your spirit of understanding. And so Lord, we give to you these moments in your word and we say, oh Lord, how we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I'd ask if you would to take your Bible and turn with me to Micah. Micah chapter 7, we come to message number 14. If you do not have a sermon outline, maybe somehow you got in past the guards and uh, they didn't get you, would you please lift your hand and these fine gentlemen will be glad to give you a sermon outline. You will need it this morning. Um, I want you to notice the title of the, of the message this morning. And um, I have to tell you that I struggled greatly with the title. Um, God's gracious mercy and horrific judgment. Now, why would I struggle with this title except that I know that during these last few months as we've been studying the book of Micah, that we've been rather amazed at how there is this beautiful picture of both God's judgment and His mercy, and there's been some new stretching in our minds and in our hearts and our spirit as we've been studying the book of Micah, as we've been learning about how God works and what He was doing in the Old Testament believers and what He was doing in the Old Testament era. And I know that sometimes in the midst of a difficult year of COVID, in the midst of difficult struggles upon our life, that, you know, we, we so want and need encouragement. And I, I hope and pray that if you've been listening to these messages, that you have seen the massive encouragement of the mercy of God over and over and over again, even in Micah. But one of the things that a preacher is sometimes tempted to do is in one way or another water down the message of God. In perhaps a lack of faith, we might be tempted to say, oh, that, that would be too much for them. In perhaps a timidity, and perhaps a fear, we might say, oh, well, that, that won't sit well, that, that won't go well with them. Or there might be some who wouldn't come back. But my friends, this morning what I've studied and what I've learned and what I see in the Word of God is, is that we must run to the Word of God and not take it like a smorgasbord, the things that we like, and leave the things that we don't like. We, we must receive it all. And as we by faith receive it all, listen to this, there are blessings galore, including when we look at both the truths that we readily receive and the truths that are just difficult. But as we come and we look at this, there would be no way for me to be faithful to this text if I said, God's gracious mercy, without revealing the horrific judgment. And here's what you're going to see this morning, I believe, is that you're going to see that His mercy is even greater and your appreciation for His mercy will be even greater as you see His judgment of sin. And so, 
this is what causes us to realize the depth of his rescue. And this morning, we want to run to this text this morning and find the great joy of it and the great relief of it. Um, I'm also reminded as I, as I think about some of these things and as we, as we preach the Scripture, I, I just want to remind you that our goal right now, our goal is to hear from God. And as we, as we come to His Word, He speaks to us through His Word. And that's been my prayer um, this week. That's been my prayer um, for this message. And we, we want to recognize that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Jesus told us to make disciples, teaching them all that he has commanded us. And so this morning we come to this glorious little letter again of Micah. For those of you who are new to us this morning, we do about a minute and a half of review. I want you to see this with me and you'll know where we are. The prophecy of Micah, and you see this under review, the prophecy of Micah has three prophecy cycles. It's only seven chapters long, but there's three cycles. In each one of those cycles, there's two very key concepts. There's the concept of God's judgment and his mercy. Many people have often thought the Old Testament is really just about judgment. It is not. That is not true at all. We see the mercy of God proclaimed, and that has been very refreshing for many of you as we've studied. The setting is this that the people of Israel are in rebellion and have sinned against God. And so we see that God has a line of prophets that over hundreds of years are proclaiming to the people their God's message for them to turn back to Him, to honor Him, to keep the covenant with Him. And time and time again, the people would listen to the kings that are around them, the people would listen to the other nations that are around them, and they would go off and worship other gods. They would come, become enthralled with the world around them instead of remembering God. And so we would see that there's the first cycle of destruction and regathering, chapter 1 and 2. Second cycle, doom and deliverance. We see both of these, judgment and mercy, judgment and mercy. Look at the third cycle, denunciations. There's the judgment. And then God's salvation. And that's where we're studying now. Micah chapter 6 and 7 are where we've been for the last few weeks. And we come now toward this close of the book, second to the last message. Next Sunday will be the final message from Micah. But this morning we start with this section, God's exaltation and salvation of his people. Notice here with me in the previous two messages, in chapter 6, 9 through 16, you remember this, that we saw the voice of God pronouncing judgment on Israel's sin. And then in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, we saw the voice of Israel lamenting the consequences of their godlessness. So they were, they were saying, you're right. Woe is me. Look what we have because of our sin. Notice here with me as well on your outline, one of the greatest consequences that we looked at last week of the godlessness we, and many of you commented this week. I got messages from several of you. Several of you just mentioned that this has been so true in your life that the consequences of godlessness is the breakdown of the family and of family relationships. We read last week that the hearts of sons will be turned away from their fathers. The hearts of, of daughters will be turned away from their mothers. 
that there's this rift even between husband and wife. And friends, that's where sin goes. When sin in a society goes further and further, we see the destruction of the family. Why? Because this, this issue of the family is so much in the image of God. And anything in the image of God in a world of sin is being marred. It's being torn down. It's being destroyed. It's being forgotten. And so what we see here in Israel's circumstances, the further they went in godlessness, the greater the consequences came, and they saw that their families were being destroyed. We see that today. For the individual here this morning, for the individual family here this morning, you can see it in your own life. The more sinful you are, the more your family is going to truly be disintegrated. This is the way it is. It takes great godliness for a family to be healthy and true. Look at the next part here. In Micah, we see that God's judgment brings his salvation. So you can't have his salvation apart from his judgment. We saw last week very clearly in verses 7 and 9 that it is through Jesus Christ that he takes God's judgment for us, thereby saving us. Notice this, the righteous God, fill this in, the righteous God who judges and condemns is also the gracious God. The gracious God who saves, and we even see here, he defends. That Jesus becomes your advocate. Jesus becomes your defender. Jesus says, no, innocent. He's innocent on account of me. This is the great glory of the gospel. As we study prophecy, many of you have said, I'm starting to understand other areas of the Bible as we've studied Micah, and that's really what ought to happen. The more you study the Bible as we, as we look, whether it's in New Testament or whether it's in the Old Testament, that we should be growing in our base knowledge that helps us understand more of the Scripture. And um, several of you have said that. There's, there's a lot of prophecy genre in your Bible. In fact, if you would, take your Bible and go to the table of contents. I want you to notice this. Go to the table of contents and look at Old Testament books. Look at your Old Testament books. It is good that we study, Micah. It is good that you come to become more familiar with this type of biblical literature and that what is actually happening with this because there is so much here. Now, there's there's prophecy in various areas, but go there to Psalms. You see Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those are the poetry books. So the last one that you see there is Song of Solomon. Well, if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, starting with what book is next? What book is next? Isaiah is the next book listed in that. From Isaiah all the way down to Malachi, those are prophecy books. And so as we've been studying the prophecy of Micah, it's reminded us of some of our study from Hosea. But as we look at that, it's good that we grow comfortable with reading the prophecies that we may start to see the gospel in them and have a more complete picture of the Word of God. And so with that, I want to just remind you of a few things. And now that you've studied it for the last several weeks, 
Some of this is going to make even more sense, and I believe pay off in the years ahead as you are a student of God's Word. Notice here with me, prophecy genre reminders. So this type of literature, this prophetic literature, first of all, we've said this, Hebrew poetry is often used. It's not always used, but it's often used in the prophecy books. There are sections of them that are not poetry, but by and large, most of it is Hebraic poetry. And so, yes, we can know, fill this in, we can know God's message for us through these writings. Even though you don't know Hebrew and even though you can't see all of the alliterations or some of the form, we've talked about the fact that notice in the box down there on the page in Micah 7, notice there that there's different indentation. And part of the reason that we have indentation is because most of us, we, we don't know Hebrew. So we can't see the way the rhyme is going. We can't see the way the acrostic is going as we're looking at it in English or in Spanish, or in some other, or in French. You, you, you're not able to see that, but if we were looking at it in Hebrew, and we knew Hebrew, we would see how it fits. Well, so when we look at this, we can get the message. Unfortunately, though, here's the next line, unfortunately, we often miss the beauty and the nuance of the Hebrew. And um, there, there's there's, sometimes I can point things out or a pastor can point out certain aspects that you will see it and you'll go, oh, wow, that's a play on words. That's a play on the sound. It's a play on the rhyme or it's a play, play on the way it is, it is written. And it, for those of you that say, man, I wish I had that, I would say this, learn Hebrew. You really can. You can study Hebrew and you can learn Hebrew. It's, it's not too far away. And the, the younger you are, uh, the more we would say, go for it. Um, I started learning French when I was in my 30s, and that was very difficult. French and Arabic were very learned, very difficult to study as we get older. But I want to encourage you, the younger you are, become a student of Greek and Hebrew um, and Latin as you, as you are learning to work with not only the texts of the Bible, but the texts of um, great scholarship. The next thing I want you to notice here is not only that Hebrew poetry is often used and we can get the message, but notice this, the prophetic references are often layered. They're often layered. So what do, what do I mean by that? Notice the next line. These prophetic re references often apply to specific events at or around the time of the preacher say Micah or Isaiah or Hosea. So sometimes there, he's, he's referencing something, he's mentioning something that is either just happened or is happening or is about to happen. It's a warning. People turn back, honor God, or this judgment is going to come. God is going to make us desolate. God is going to carry us away into captivity. There's going to be a consequence of our of our disobedience, of our breaking the covenant of God. Very often you see it referring to a specific instance in their day. But listen, also we often see prophetic references, they foreshadow a greater reality to come. And we're going to see that this morning. That sometimes it is mentioning something that is happening in their day, but there's an even greater picture that the longer that we go through history, the more we see of God's work, the more we see that 
oh, Isaiah was not only mentioning this in their day, but even far more, there is a greater picture of what is going to come in the future. You see, many prophecies, third line there, many prophecies point to eschatological events, or those are, fill it in, end times events. Yes, it's referring to something sometimes in Micah's day or Daniel's day or Hosea's day, but also there are the pictures of other events that are coming in the future and many in the eschatological times or the end times. The final judgment of the wicked and the salvation of the redeemed. Those are key events that we see coming to light in the prophets. And ultimately we see in every one of the prophets, we see the reign of the Messiah King. We see pictures and references and pointing pointers to the reign of the Messiah King. So yes, there's, there's statements that he's going to come into Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, he's, going to, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and his name is going to be... We, we see these prophecies that in their day are not yet there. It's another 700 years before Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. So we see that there was, there was references to it in the future. And so I just want you to see as a student of the Bible how this fits. And this morning, it's going to make a lot more sense even in just a few moments. But we come again to Micah chapter 7, and this morning we pick up in chapter 11 through 17. 11 through 17, and we look at God's exaltation of the redeemed. Put above that statement, God's exaltation of the redeemed, mercy. Put above that, the word mercy. And then also we see, and his destruction of the wicked, judgment. We see it, and we're going to see, we're going to notice a very important order switch in the way it's presented here. But look at verse 11 with me. Micah chapter 7 and verse 11. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Flip the page. Let's look at the box on the back side. Verse 14, 15, 16, and 17 say this. Verse 14 says, Shepherd your people with your staff and the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan in Gilead as in the days of old. Verse 15. As in the days when you came out, of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. Verse 16, the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. So in this passage, as we're coming to the end of Micah, we see that God is is proclaiming his message of mercy. And we're going to see this amazing picture of his grace. This amazing picture of what he's going to do after Israel had been so disobedient. What he's going to give them is amazing. 
But we're also going to see that those who persist in rejecting him, those who persist in not coming to him, who refuse to repent, we're going to see that there is a certain terrifying judgment. And it it is so helpful to us in this day because we can either see our turning to God and his blessing or we can see and hear the warning that if we don't turn to God, the horrific judgment that is to come. And so notice with me here in verse 11. I want to read the passage again in verse 11. Look what it says. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and from the cities of Egypt. And it goes on. But verse 11 is talking about this. Fill this in. Now God's mercy lifts up his remnant. Now, do you remember the remnant, what we talked about? What is the remnant? It's that, it's that thread of those who are turning to God and repenting before God. It's that thread. They're, they're not righteous people in themselves. They're unrighteous in their sin. They're sinners just like anyone else, but they're turning to God. They're not leaving God. They're not, they're not running off to other gods to stay. They are turning to God. They're hearing the voice to repent and stay with God. Now that is the remnant. God always has his remnant. Through the ages, God has his remnant of his true people. And here we see that those who who are his people, he is going to build them up. It is his mercy. Look what it says there. A day, that day. Now this is talking about a future day of significance. A future day of significance. In fact, Uh, either on the screen or on the verse there in the page in front of you, notice this passage of Scripture. We see the word day three times show up in three lines. Now, when Hebrew poetry does that, understand that that is an emphasis. Whenever you see something being repeated, that means, oh, pay attention, okay? So notice what it says in verse 11. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be extended. Verse 12, in that day, they will come to you. So Micah is saying, hey, hey, church of the Old Testament, hey, hey, people of God, listen, there's a day coming when God is going to restore And he's going to restore beautifully this city. And here's the next part. Fill this in. Notice here with me. Your walls. Now, it's interesting. The word your in verse 11 is a feminine version of your. And so the feminine version of your, when it's talking about walls, it's not talking about you as an individual, the walls of your house or the walls that are around your little town. This is the big picture of the walls of the people, and this is the big picture of Jerusalem. This is pointing to Jerusalem. And why is that such a big deal? Because Jerusalem is the place where God's temple was. Jerusalem is the place where Mount Moriah was. Jerusalem is the place where God, this is the city of God. This is the place that they are to come to see him and to worship him. And so this is the representation, the capital of the nation. And God is saying, that I will rebuild your walls, I will build you up. And this is a precursor certainly to an event that is going to come as God restores them, but this is also a picture to that which is even still yet to come for us as God will truly 
expand the nations. That's going to become more evident here. Look at this. Far extended. Look what it says in verse 11. A day for the building of your walls. Look at verse 11, second line. In that day the boundary shall be what? Far extended. Now here's the idea. God is saying, not only am I going to give you your city back, that the Assyrians and the Babylonians and, and the others have come and destroyed, but I'm going to expand your city. I'm going to expand the walls of your city. I'm going to make it a greater city. And we're going to see even here later that this is, this is really talking figuratively because he's saying that, that whole regions of the area are going to be considered in your domain. And here, part of the picture is, is that Micah is blowing their minds with how good God's mercy is going to be to them. We see as well in verse 12. Notice in verse 12. In that day, again, that statement, in that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to, to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Verse 12, fill it in. This is a great future gathering. This is a great future gathering. Now, the first layer of that is that God is going to bring the people back from Persia. The Persian king that beats the Babylonians is going to let them go home. He's going to bless them to go home to Jerusalem. So we see that layer there. But as we also see in all of the other prophecies throughout the Old Testament, and then we start seeing the New Testament picture is, is that God is building his true city, his true glorious city that he is expanding. And it's, he's going to bring people in from everywhere. Notice the statement that is here. They will come to you. They will come to you. And this is the idea of all God's true people. This is the, not just the, the remnant of Israel, but this is the people that are outside of Israel. Notice what it says there. From Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from the sea to the sea and from mountain to mountain. This is the idea seemingly from the whole earth. From all of the earth, God is going to bring people, his true people. This means not just the Jew, but this also means, as we see in the New Testament, we see that this is the Gentiles too. We see that the prophecy is that, that people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, as we see in Matthew and as we see in Revelation, that God has a plan to bring about a great mercy, a great plan. But not only in verse 12. So what did we say verse 12 is? Read the, the, read the little tagline there on verse 12. What did we say? It is a great what? Okay, that was very weak. Verse 12, look at it again. A great future what? Gathering. Gathering. Now look at the next one. Verse 13 is a great future desolation. So it's, it's not only about a great future gathering of God bringing his people, but look at verse 13. We have to pay attention to this. We cannot skip this. And we'll be better, we'll be better in our theology, we'll be better in our heart before God if we see the whole picture. Look in verse 13. Circle the first word of verse 13. But. You know, the word but is a very important word in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. There's many places in the New Testament where it's describing the judgment of God, and then it says, but God had mercy. 
but God did this, or but God did that. Here we see that God had mercy, but there is a very real judgment. There's a very real future desolation. Look at verse 13. It says, but the earth will be what? Desolate because of its inhabitants, because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Look at verse 13. This is, here's the question, are you not in the safety of the holy city and of his people? Then you are doomed. This is the picture of either being a resident of the city or not a resident of the city. And it's a very dangerous thing not to be a resident of the city. And notice this, why is this? For the fruit of their deeds. Why is it going to be desolate? Why are they going to be judged? Because of their deeds. Because of their sins. You see, so this is with reason. This is not for no reason, double negative. Not, it's not for just any reason, but it is for the sins of their life. So we, we see this judgment. But then again, we switch to the mercy. And in verse 16, six, excuse me, verse 14 and 15 are two of the most beautiful pictures that we have in all of the Old Testament. And um, it takes a little bit of looking, it takes a little bit of history to understand, it takes a little bit of, of insight here, and I, I think you're going to be appreciative of what God is describing here. In verse 14, circle the first word. So now we go back to the mercy. It's shepherd your people with your staff. So this is like Micah crying out to God, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest. Now, some of you would say, well, that sounds scary to me. Oh, no, no, no. That's, this, we're going to see that this is, a, this is a great blessing that God is saying, is that you're not, you're not having other people around you coming and taking. You're not, you're not dealing with the godless that have been around you forever. This is a people that have a very unique and special place with God. Look what it says. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan in Gilead as in the days of old. So what is 14 talking about? Number 14 is this. Fill it in. The good shepherd, this is the good shepherd and his true flock. So God in his mercy even though they have rebelled, even though they have sinned, even though they, they have not been all that he called them to be, they turn back to him. That's what always the message of the prophets is. Turn back to God. And that's what God is going to do. He's going to shepherd them. And notice this, the idea of shepherd and the other words that are on that top line are shepherd, this is his tender care. And notice this, they belong. You see, they're called your people. They belong to him. They're not a people who have, who have no God. They're not a people who have no shepherd. They are his people. They belong. And then look at the last word in verse 14, or the top line of verse 14. He says, shepherd your people with your what? Staff. Put out there to the side rulership. The staff is always a symbol of he who rules. You see that all the way back to the Egyptian dynasties, that they would have a staff. Um, you see um, Moses with a staff. He's a, he's a shepherd leader. We see that God rules us and leads us and protects us with his staff. So 
His shepherd care is a beautiful thing. And notice this. It says in verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your, underline it there, your inheritance. You see, he lavishly provides for them. This is an inheritance that is beautiful and glorious that God leaves to us and gives to us an inheritance that is glorious. And notice who they are. They dwell alone in a forest. You see, they are holy, which means set apart. These people are are not with all the other nations of the world. They're not like everybody else. Brothers and sisters here at Sheridan Hills, this is the picture that we are called to be unlike everybody else. Now, I'm not talking about we're not called to be just odd for God, you know, run around, you know, I, I'm, I'm just kind of weird and, you know, whatever. We're not talking about, you know, we have to stick out in some strange way, and the more we stick out, that must mean the more holy we are. That's not the point. But the picture is that we're a people who are living for the God of not only this world that that rules and reigns over all things, but we're living for the next world. We see the promises that have been made, and we're a holy nation set apart for a holy God. And so notice verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. He's providing for them who dwell alone in a forest. It's a beautiful thing, not out alone, I mean, not out in the desert. Look in the next line, in the midst of a garden land, um, a garden land. This is looking back to Eden, fill that in. This is, this is like looking back to everything right, everything perfect, the beauty of that. And we also see another look back. They're looking back. It says, let them graze in Bashan and Gilead. Some of you are saying, what in the world is that all about? Well, listen. As um, God's people were coming out of the wilderness and entering into the promised land that God had promised them, the two first areas that they went into, the, two, the, the primary two areas that they went into was Bashan and Gilead. And Bashan, and Gil- Bashan was a forest, a beautiful forest. And Gilead was an area of the promised land that just had rolling hills with super rich soil, which meant really great pastures. And so, there, man, it was a place teeming with life. It wasn't a desert. It wasn't desolate. It was a place where you could really live. It was a beautiful pasture, and that's what Bashan and Gilead are showing us here. And he's saying that God is going to restore you just like what you experienced 700 years ago when you went into the promised land. Listen, God is going to restore it. And this is the picture of, and it says at the end of verse 14, as in the days of old. So it's pointing back, but he's not just talking about what he did. He's talking about what he's going to do. Look at verse 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, there's that picture, I will show them marvelous things. So look at verse 15. This is showing us that God, this is the, this is the God who is generous and joyful giver. That's what he is. God, the generous and joyful giver. Now, when I think about verse 15, I think about um, how God wanted so much 
to bless his people. If you go back and you read the story of, of the Exodus, and you read the story of Joshua, and you read the story of them coming into the land, that God was waiting at every turn to show them that he was there. He was at every turn ready to show them that he was willing. In fact, when I was studying about this and I was thinking about this, he says in verse 15, I will show them marvelous things. I had this thought. Do you have that image in your mind of that dad who has maybe a kid or two or three, he has some children, and it's coming up on Christmas. It's coming up on Christmas, and he is so excited about what he's given his kids for Christmas. I mean, he's, he's, this is a dad that, man, he's, he's kind of sensitive, and he's, he's kind of in tune with them, and, he, and he's really, he's a, he has a generous heart, and he can't wait to bless them with some things. And you wake up on Christmas morning, and, and dad's like, today's the day, you know, we're, we're gonna, this is going to be great, and, and he's going to show them this, and he's going to do that. Or it's the dad who's maybe planned a vacation, and nobody knows what all's on the vacation, and he's got this worked out, and he's got this worked out, and he's got work, this worked out. Marcy's dad is kind of like that sometimes. Marcy's dad um, in Oklahoma, here's what he does. He, he just, he kind of makes a plan. And um, as time goes on, you know, nobody really knows what the whole plan is. And then as time goes on, he, he has one surprise, and then he has another surprise, and then he has another surprise. And you can tell he's, he, he's grown man and everything, but he's excited about it. Friends, listen, that is kind of what we see here with the heart of God. That he's saying, I have these things for you, and they're going to be so good. They're going to be so good. I'm, I'm going to cause you, and, and, and it's, it's really just straight out of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in what? Green pastures. He makes me to lie down in Gilead. He leads me besides quiet waters. He comes and he restores my soul. I mean, this is the, the picture of the good shepherd that even after our rebellion, even after our sinning against him, that he's coming and he's saying, I love you, and I want to show you marvelous things. Friends, this is the heart of God. This is the gracious heart of God. He's a generous, I hope you filled that in, verse 15. He's a generous and joyful giver. As he spectacularly delivers them from Pharaoh, he miraculously provides for them. Gladly, joyfully, generously, he provides for them. The great mercy of a good God. Now look at verse 16. Shift gears. The nations, so this is not talking about the nation of God in the forest that's alone. This is talking about all of the other nations that have rejected God, all of the peoples who have rejected God, even the people of Israel who have rejected God. The nations shall see and be ashamed, this is a strange phrase, of all their might. You see, with all of their power, all of their chariots, all of their horses, maybe for us, all of your wealth, your business, your nest egg, all of your stuff that you've got together. Look what he says. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths and their ears shall be deaf. 
They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their stronghold. They will turn in dread to the Yahweh, put Y-H-W-H over Lord, to, this is his personal name, they will turn in dread to Yahweh God, and they will be in fear of you. Now look at verse 16. What are, we, what are we seeing in verse 16? In verse 16, we see it very similarly to last week. Remember last week ended in verse 10, that they're going to be trampled down like the mire in the streets. Remember that? It left off with the fact that he, they're going to be utterly wiped out, and they're going to see, they're going to see their demise. They're going to see and be ashamed, and then they're going to be utterly trampled down. And in verse 16, we see that same thought. Look at verse 16. The nations shall what? Circle it. The nations shall see it. They're going to see it. This is, this is part of the picture in Philippians chapter 2 that when everything is said and done, even though Jesus was crucified on a cross, there's coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess above the earth, under the earth, below the earth, everyone is going to see that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And here we see that they will see and be ashamed of all their might. Now, usually you would think, well, they're going to be proud of their might. Why would they be ashamed of all of their might? Why would they be ashamed of their great armies, of their great armor, of their great tactics, of their great leaders, of their great generals? Why would they be ashamed of their great citadels, of their great cities? Why would be they be ashamed of their great technology, in whether it be war or in provision for farming and everything else? Why would they be ashamed of their strongholds? Because they see that it is totally worthless before a holy God. They cannot fight him. They cannot protect themselves from him. They will see and be ashamed of it. Finally, it will be clear to them that they have no hope. And they will lay their hands on their mouths. I mean, it's the... And then it's the scene in the movie when the bomb has just go- gone off and the audio changes in the movie and the, all the motion slows down and you see the guy and he's moving around in the days and you can't hear anything. You know how they do that in movies? They make it where it's, it's reality that he's, he's got the shock in his ears and maybe all he hears is a as as the great titanic, cataclysmic thing happens around him, and he suddenly is in a daze. And he realizes how much trouble he's in. Verse 16, the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears shall be deaf. Fill these in if you haven't already. All their earthly stuff and junk will mean nothing. They have no defense against God. And they will, here's a good word, they will be aghast. They will be aghast. They will be in shock. I mean, it's as if they've just seen a ghost. 
That's kind of where the word aghast comes from. It's a, it's a frightening, terrified moment. Folks, this is part of the great judgment of God that people who have not turned to Him, who have not repented before Him, who have not recognized that there is coming a day. This is that day, that day, when they will realize it. In verse 17 it says, and they shall lick the dust like a serpent. That's being all the way down there at the bottom. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. It's as if Micah just turns as he's preaching to the people, describing their judgment, and as he's preaching it seamlessly, he's saying to them, and they shall be in dread of the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, and they will be in fear of you. This is the true Micah's words of This judgment, look at verse 17, fill it in. They finally, finally, they fear God. But it's too late. Finally, they fear God, but it's too late. The wicked realize ultimate, humiliating defeat. That's what we see here. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They're crawling like the things of the earth. The ones who stood proud, rebelled against God, said, we can do what we want, we can build what we want, we can live like we want, we have our morality, where is your God? Are you kidding me? All those who look at the righteous and say, oh, where's your God now? I mean, it's like the thief on the cross or the criminal on the cross that says, hey, if you're really God, why don't you get us out of this mess? But there's the repentant. There's whom God would make the righteous by faith, who says, you and I have done things that cause us to deserve this, but this one, he has done nothing wrong. Go read the story of Jesus' death on the cross. See that there is judgment and mercy See that the one who is hanging next to the Lord in his sin calls out in faith and says, remember me when you come into your Father's kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, finally they fear God, but it's too late. The wicked realize the humiliating defeat. In terror, they abandon their strongholds. That's what it says. They come trembling out of their strongholds. They they have this great fortress. They have this great walled city. They have this great bunker, whatever it may be that they thought that they were safe from, and they come trembling out of it, knowing that it will do them no good. And now comes God, fill it in, as their final enemy. You don't want God as your final enemy. And I want you to see the juxtaposition here. I want you to see this, and and so I've made this last statement there. While the redeemed are fed, 
in the pastures of Gilead and in the pastures of Bashan, the wicked are in fear. So I just, I ask you, why would you not turn to God? Why would you not run to God? Why would you continue in your sin? Why would you continue to think your little stronghold is going to be great? Because it's not. When you hold on to your, your morality that is against the heart of God and you defend it, or you excuse it, or you act like He doesn't see it, whether it's your, your sexual behavior, or whether it's your tongue, or your mouth, or your business practices, or whatever it is, you, you, you think He doesn't see it? You think He doesn't see your attitude in your heart that you, that you refuse to run to Him in repentance on? You think that somehow your morality is going to save you? See, fill this in, number one. There is a judgment that leads to everlasting salvation and blessing. I want you to see that, that there's a judgment that leads to salvation and blessing. It's when Christ takes upon Himself our judgment. But there is a judgment that leads to everlasting condemnation and devastation. There's one that leads to salvation and blessing, and there's one that leads to condemnation and devastation, and that's what Micah wants his hearers to hear. That's what he wants them to understand. That's what he wants them to see. Micah calls people, fill it in, Micah calls people everywhere to repent of their sin and turn to God in humility. That's what he wants. That's what God is calling us to But sadly, and we see Jesus even tell us this, that most will reject his message and perish. Some will receive his message and be saved. Now the present notion in modern theology and in modern belief is that eh, God, you know, he's going to take care of everybody. Everybody eventually gets there. I mean, we see this even back in the Middle Ages, going back to uh, even Roman Catholic belief with purgatory, that eventually, you know, you, you'll get there eventually, but nothing could be more clear to us except that God says that there are those who are the redeemed and there are those who have not been redeemed. This reality but it is throughout the Scripture, and we have a much clearer understanding, not only of the warning that God gives for us to run to Him for His salvation, but also, listen to this, it causes us to appreciate His incredible mercy that we as sinners who deserve such would receive just the opposite at His expense, not at ours. This is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. I was blind, but now I see. Look at verse two or number two. Not only is there a judgment, but there is a good and great shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. 
This passage is about shepherding. And we see shepherding throughout the Bible. Moses was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. We see that God has this relationship with what he calls his flock. And so there's a good and great shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Look what it says. Now may the God of peace who brought again who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And how did he do it? By the blood of the eternal covenant. You see, God had an eternal covenant of salvation to redeem his people, and he fulfills it. John chapter 10 and verse 11, and notice here with me next to that reference, it says, see all of John chapter 10. That's a good thing for you to do this evening. John chapter 15 verse 23, even Psalm 23 that I've already spoken of, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. Isaiah chapter 40, we see this over and over and over again, this picture, and let's read the text out loud. John chapter 10 verse 11, what does it say? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Over and over again, we see that that is our salvation. This is Jesus Christ on the cross, taking the sin and the shame and, listen, the judgment and wrath of God to save us. This is how salvation comes through judgment. Judgment is not excused. Judgment is not ignored. Judgment is not withheld. We are found guilty, and God says, I'll pay the fine. This is mercy. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 25. A little stronger if you would read it this time. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. Look what it says. Let's read. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the message of Micah. That you were, you were like sheep wandering out into the world away from the shepherd. And look what it says here. But you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. This is Maybe some of you today would say, well, you know, somehow I've been drawn to this church. I've come I've enjoyed being here. I've been starting to hear these messages. And, and something in my heart has been just being awoken. Maybe I, maybe I haven't really been walking with God. And maybe I even came here kind of feeling religious. But now I start to see that God is all about making me truly close to Him. Friend, I would call you to run to him in faith and believe. I would call you to turn to him and trust in him in truth. Notice here number three. In number three we see God calls you to turn away from your sin. That's what, that's what Israel is being challenged to do. Turn away from your sin and then look at this, and run to him for mercy. Oh friends, some of you today you turn away from your sin. Just turn away from your unbelief. Friend, I, I would just say in, in humility and brokenness, lay your pride down and just say, oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. 
If you hear his voice, look what it says, do not delay. If you hear his voice, I, I, I want you to see this in Psalm 95. Look at Psalm 95 and look at verse 6, 8. It's the box that is right there on the page. Don't anybody fold up your sheet. Look at this first. Look at Psalm 95. Look what it says in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and what? Bow down. You see humility here. This is recognizing you're not God. And there's not another God. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. And look what it says after that. Our what? See, this is the creator. He made you. You didn't make him with your hands. You didn't make a wooden or a stone idol. You didn't make it with all your hard work and buy it or live in it or whatever your false idols are. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And by the way, Lord, what are we, what are we saying there? Yahweh God. This is Yahweh. Let us kneel before Yahweh. For he is our God. He is our Elohim. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. There it is again. He is a good shepherd. And then look at the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah or as at the day of Massa in the wilderness because you will remain in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, May we be a people who live our lives embracing the covenant of God. May we be the people who live our lives faithful by God's grace and through His mercy to His love. And friend, if you are not in that covenant, I call you to turn to Him in belief. I call you to run to His gracious mercy and find rescue from his horrific judgment. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I'd like you, if you would, to stand with me. Father in heaven, we do come before you now and we pray, O oh God, that these words that we have studied would be on our heart, that we would see and hear them, Lord, today, that we would not turn away from them, but that we would allow them to speak to us. Lord, I pray that every heart today would evaluate carefully have I run to the mercy of God or have I remained in my sin? Friend, maybe you're new to us today or maybe you've been here for 50 years. I don't know. But if you do not know that you know that you know that Jesus died for your sins, that you have come to him not with all that you have to bring to him, but you've come to him in broken faith. I invite you to come today. I invite you to come and just pray with somebody right up here on either side of this room. There's somebody that would love to pray with you. I invite you to come and know that you know that you know that Christ and Christ alone is Lord of your heart. And for Christians today, I pray that you would be encouraged that the great rescue is yours in Christ. He has kept his covenant. He has kept his promise. And he says, you are mine, the people of my pasture. 
the sheep of my hand. Lord, I pray that we would live like that. I pray that we would love your pastures and not the wilderness of the world. Lord, help us to leave the foolishness of the kingdoms that are around us and worship the God who made us.